Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. These are not normal times. For the last few weeks, the only issue that's been in the news, or really on anybody's mind, has been the coronavirus. Consequently, we've really been trying hard here on Deep Background to bring you updates from the leading experts on the medical side, on the economic side, and on the constitutional political side to try to make sense of what's happening. We promise to keep on doing that. This episode is a little different. It's about a topic that turns out to be of central importance in a moment of pandemic with everybody staying at home, namely the topic of food, what we eat, why we eat it, and how we think about the supply chains associated with the food that we put on the table. But this episode was not recorded in the middle of the pandemic. This episode was recorded before people started staying at home. Nevertheless, we think it's really important to bring it to you right now because in the circumstances of pandemic and social distancing, we're sitting around our houses thinking about how to put food on the table for ourselves and our loved ones. And that entails cooking. Cooking not purely for pleasure, but cooking because it might be the only way you're actually going to have a properly prepared meal. We know that by virtue of the fact that so many restaurants are closed in so many parts of the country, and also by virtue of the fact that so many grocery stores have had their shelves emptied as people go out to buy food in anticipation of possible long quarantines. So today, we're going to hear from a person who has taught many of us how to cook, someone who has had a huge impact on my life and that of many others, the food writer Mark Bittman. There's a good chance you own or have seen at least one of his cookbooks. His most famous one is called How to Cook Everything. That book taught millions of people how to cook, and I have the feeling that it may be teaching many more how to cook in the weeks and months ahead. Recently, Mark released an updated 20th year anniversary edition. He's also written Fish, The Complete Guide to Buying and Cooking, 
a book that had a big impact on my relationship with my mother, as we'll explore, and a diet book called Vegan Before 6 p.m., VB6, and beyond that, almost two dozen other books on various aspects of food. He was a food columnist for the New York Times for 13 years, and he's now editor-in-chief of the food publication Heated. I talked to Mark about the transformation he has seen over the course of his career in how he talks about food and how we think about it. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I really I appreciate it tremendously. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. If I could start on a personal note, I just want to say that your fish book has played a central role in my relationship with my mother <laughs> over many, many years, involving a complex polemic about whether it's okay to undercook the fish, or as she would put it, okay not to overcook the fish. Right. I have to say that um, fish is tricky. Cooking fish is tricky, and and every general rule is pretty much wrong. So <laughs> um, the thing is that some fish wants to be cooked for a long time, and mm -hmm. most fish barely wants to be cooked, cooked at, at all. all. So yes. that is... Um, that was the first book I did. It was published in 94, and the publisher wanted me to redo it. And I said, it's impossible to write about fish now. There are so many... Mm -hmm moral minefields, ethical minefields, that anything you write, if someone wants to trash you, they can trash you. And it just, it's not, it, it's hard to encourage the eating of fish, even though it's good for people, mm -hmm. um, because the sustainability issues and other issues are so fraught that I just kind of decided I wasn't going to write about it anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's extremely fascinating. And it the the sense that there's a moral compunction that interferes with, you know, going back and, and, and even doing a second edition of the book or a further edition of the book raises a question that I, I've been really struggling with in, in thinking about our conversation in advance. And here's what it is. I feel as though when you started writing as a food writer, the genre, not yours in particular, but the way the genre worked was still very much a kind of life improvement. If you will cook this recipe in this way, it will taste good, so you'll feel better because you're eating better food, and your life will be better because the people around you will also enjoy this. And now the genre, including very much your work, has evolved so that very often you're also telling us what's good for the world. Not just what's good for you, the reader, in cooking or in eating, but how the world will benefit. And so the problem with eating fish, for example, as you say, is it might be great for you, but it might be really bad for the world. Right. So how do you think about that, those those two roles? Obviously, they can be mixed. But first of all, do you think that has changed over the course of your career? And more importantly, how has it changed for you? Well, you're it's a wonderful analysis and totally true. And um, I started cooking in the 70s, and we were ignorant. So those questions weren't raised because... We, in general, were more ignorant. I, in particular, was way more ignorant. So um, things did start to change, but they changed very slowly. People didn't talk about climate change. Mm -hmm. People didn't talk about waste. Mm -hmm. And it's taken until now, you know, we, when I, we people who are striving to have food being taken seriously on a grander stage, in a way, I mean, not just hunger, but all of the issues that we talk about, malnutrition and sustainability and the impact of agriculture on the environment and climate change and all of that stuff, we, I guess me and my comrades, whatever, think that food has gotten underplayed in its role in these huge issues. Mm -hmm. And 
I still think that's the case, although more and more people do talk about food and agriculture in that bigger sense. But and you're out there talking about well, it I, as as are as you say your your comrades. Comrades, but you know, I'm just one voice and not a particularly loud one, but yeah, back in the 60s and 70s, you ate food because it tasted good and you cooked because it tasted better mm -hmm. and you kind of didn't you might think about good ingredients, but if they were there, you saw them and you ate them, but you didn't go talking about them all mm -hmm. the time, I don't think. Even the, so even within the doing good for the world, there's still two different parts. There's the health part, and then there's the global health part, the sustainability, you know, the, the, the planet, as it were, as the, as the patient. Well, what well, we're the, the happy and, and sad circumstance here, and quite possibly unique, or at least unusual, is that what's good for you is good for the planet and vice versa. That the way to eat for your body's optimal health happens to be the way that good agriculture would be providing you with food and protecting the health of the earth. So, And is that genuinely by accident? I mean, this is something I'm puzzling over very well, much. You know, I mean, the we vegans We don't believe say, in God, right? Right, so it's exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, we're actually going there. Believe it or not, we're going to God in this conversation one way or another. Um, but, you know, the vegans, the hardcore vegans would say, yeah, it's not a coincidence at all. And a lot of them would offer, not all, but all, some of them would offer a kind of what I would call a secular theology uh, in which we are in some way in communion with the earth. And therefore, it's not a surprise that that which is good for our bodies is grown out of the earth. You know, I don't think I'm making this out to be much more mystical than a lot of a lot of vegans would describe it as as being. And I should say I'm not a vegan. I'm trying to channel that that point of view here. Well, I mean, vegan or not, because you can believe that animals and even eating animals are part of this system. You, I don't think you have to be a vegan to believe that that there is some kind of system that nourishes both the planet and people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so could, I don't think this needs to be a vegan or non-vegan argument. I agree. In fact, it makes more sense from that sort of cosmic perspective to be an omnivore insofar as you think there's some evolutionary component to this. You know, it's probably not a coincidence that humans have evolved to be omnivorous. Right. It's not a co that we That we can say, I think, with some assuredness. But... Um, it's hard because if you're going to put a label on it that it's mystical or spiritual, then it's difficult to make that argument. You kind of either believe it or you don't. But if you're going to put a label on it, if you're going to say it's not a coincidence that what's good for the planet is good for the people who live on the mm -hmm. planet, that doesn't have to be a mystical or spiritual argument. That can be a pragmatic argument. I just don't know that I'm prepared to make it. It's a great You prefer the pragmatic question. version of the argument. Well, You're fine to say. I think it just that so, it's just true. so happens that. Right, right. Exactly, yeah. I think that it's true. It is hard to believe it's a coincidence. Like, it just mm -hmm. happens to be that way. Mm -hmm. I don't know that anyone's made the argument that growing the plants that nourish your body are by necessity the plants that are good for stewarding the land. Indeed, it is that way, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's not because of teleology or right. God or right. something, but it... And I it's not because it, of nature, because we're, we're literally talking about his culture, which originally is like the culture, the word culture comes from agriculture. It's about growing stuff. So it's a self-conscious thing. It's not a hunter-gatherer picture. It's not a, you know, paleo diet account whereby the things we really should eat would be just the things that we happen to find. Because if that were the case, we really wouldn't be able to sustain anything like the, the global population that we do. We need to grow some stuff. Well, we don't know that we are sustaining it, and we do know 
that populations that are 5,000 years old have sustained themselves by doing more earth-friendly forms of agriculture. So the biggest and oldest populations in the world, which are in Asia, mm-hmm. eat mostly plants mm-hmm. and always have mm-hmm. and have done agriculture that could be argued is sustainable. And if something has proven itself over 5,000 years- You're talking about rice culture now, broadly Yeah, speaking. kind of, kind of, but wheat culture too. Mm-hmm. But culture where there have been water challenges and weather challenges and challenges to the civilizations themselves, but that the food culture has been sustained. There's no Western food culture that's been sustained for anything like that period of time. Clearly and certainly not, no. not in North America. I mean, everything that we've done in the last, say, 150, 200 years is only that old. That's yes. how old it is. Yes. You can't call that sustainable, even if at the moment it appears to be working. It's not long enough to say, oh, yeah, this is, you know, the, it's, it's funny to get into the, to the kind of philosophical or interesting to get into the kind of philosophical side of things because when people argue that industrial agriculture is the way to do it because how else are we going to support mm-hmm. them doing air quotes? How else are we going to mm-hmm. support 10 billion people, blah, blah, blah? and that anything else is a pipe dream. The pipe dream is to imagine that industrial agriculture is sustainable because there's so much evidence that it isn't. And the reality is to say we need to make it better. How do we make agriculture better? That's not a pipe dream to say how do we make agriculture better. It's a pipe dream to say we figured out agriculture. No, we haven't. Quite the opposite. We figured out how to wreck the earth and how to cause a public health crisis by force-feeding people junk food. So... What is the answer? You know, the answer is it has to be better. The answer mm-hmm. is it has to change. Mm-hmm. We'll be back in just a moment. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I want to ask you about the process whereby food writers and then the people who read them came to see the world in the way that you're describing, came to care first, I would say probably in order, first about taste, then about health, and then about sustainability and, and the world. And the reason I want to ask about that is that I think the answer may have something to do with a very particular elite, you know, upper middle class, for lack of a better term, you know, New York Times reading. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I guilty as charged, you know, as, as a reader and sometime contributor. Um, and, and the reason I'm asking this is when the history of this is told, will they say, you know, that it was something about pretty rich people who nevertheless had some, or maybe because they had the money, were capable of thinking ethically that drove this, this kind of process? Because if that were true, I don't know if that's a true story or a fair story, mm. but if it were a true story, it does come from a certain kind of excess, an excess of wealth, an excess of, you know, elite cultural position. And then it comes to seem like good common sense with, you know, people like you functioning as kind of the prophets of the story, you know, the mm. ones who are who are telling the story and telling us, you know, what we ought to believe. And it, then it's not a coincidence that you start by telling us what we ought to eat because it tastes good. And then you move through that to telling us what to eat in order to make the world a better place. I, you know, there are many other factors that you haven't mentioned, but I think one thing you're overlooking in this in this story is that, let's say, one-third of the world has been eating according to the tenets of sustainability forever, mm -hmm. and they're not New York Times readers, sure. and they're not white elites. But so, they may not have been doing it in order for it to be sustainable. They may just have been doing it because it worked for them. Come on. <laughs> That's not sustainability. I mean, it worked for them for 5,000 years. Yeah, but people don't always... I mean, just to push back a little bit, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but people don't always do something because they know that it's always worked. I mean, they, they people do things on a daily oh, basis for all course. kinds that's of ordinary right. reasons. Right. Sometimes failing to change something that's, people, you know, take some oppressive structure that, we, that we've, that's been around for 5,000 years, I don't know, sexism or something like that. People say, well, we, we always have done it this right, way, so right. we stick with it. Right. And then a critic wants to say, yeah, but you know, you think that works, but it doesn't work for half the people. And so, I, you know, I don't want to jump to the, the conclusion that the antiquity of a practice shows that it's necessarily right. a good one. Well, except... When people switch from traditional diets to contemporary Western diets, they get chronic disease. Yes, no so question. There's yeah. no question about that. No, that I, is the I truth. Agree. So I think that it's arguable and demonstrable that traditional diets work mm -hmm. and that we're not discovering anything new here when we're saying eat a diet that's heavy in plants and light in anything else. What mm -hmm. we have done that's new is in the last... 100 or 150 years has invent a bunch of food that makes people sick that didn't even exist before that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think maybe it takes 
public intellectuals or whatever the shortcut version of what you mm-hmm. said before is to recognize that first a lot of it is an academic comes out of academia but the marketing of that junk food targets everyone but it targets less well-off people disproportionately and it targets everyone to the extent that it can and it targets us so well that it's almost as if there's no choice but to eat junk food so Mm -hmm. rebelling against that or recognizing that is not easy and many people are just simply too busy you know, they're just like trying to get some food. And there's a wealth and a, and a class element, obviously, there as well. It's You have to live in a neighborhood where there are shops that sell fresh food. You have to be able to afford to buy them, although, of course, ideally, it would be just as affordable as other food, but it isn't at the moment. You have to have the time to actually put the food on the table. And I recognize that lots of people who have free time say they don't when they really do. Mm. But on the other hand, there are people who are working two or three jobs and are genuinely at the margins economically who really don't have have the time. Right. I used to say, I used to argue that people, everybody should cook and that it was ironic that people would watch cooking on television and say they didn't have time to cook at home. Yes. But there are so many people who have transportation challenges and two job challenges and scheduling challenges and childcare issues and da 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 on and on and on. I don't think it's right to say that anymore. Mm-hmm. I probably wasn't right to say it in the first place. Hmm. Um, although it it's a good line and it's, it's a great line. And yeah. it's and yeah. there are people who watch TV instead of cooking. I mean, people on the say other hand, maybe exercise. they're exhausted. Right. So. People say the same thing about exercise. You know, if you're watching sports on television, why aren't you out there working out? Right. And right. that, in in theory, that makes good sense. People's realities are are complicated. Right. I think the real the real issue here, the real, I don't think tra- the real tragedy is that junk food marketers target everybody, and they're very very sophisticated. That kind of marketing, which is scientific and mm-hmm. algorithmic and mm-hmm. way beyond my understanding, at least, you know, gets us to eat all kinds of things that we know we shouldn't be eating. And there's, there's no question about whether we should be eating them mm-hmm. in the way quantities we are. And, and everyone has that experience. Everyone has the experience of looking at some piece of junk food and thinking, I know I'm not supposed to eat that, and then eating it. Right. Probably even Gwyneth Paltrow sometimes Something <laughs> Even when <laughs> but the, the the point is that I don't think that that's the thing that doesn't get talked about. It gets talked mm-hmm. about a lot, but it mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about enough because that is the thing that's wrecking both our health and the health of the planet. So, so one solution to that is regulation. And I'm when, into it. I'm down with that. Yeah. And when Mike Bloomberg was was mayor of New York, he went big time into some versions of that. I mean, I, I suppose in, from some perspective, they were pretty modest. You know, you can't buy soda in a 40 ounce, you know, well, cup or something like that. after he tried to get a soda tax passed and failed. And so, failed, um, right. So, but that was a backup plan. And, you know, there was some backlash to the, the Bloomberg approach. You know, people talked about the nanny state or the, the nanny mayor. That's something that may or may not follow him, you know, in, in his political future. How do you think about the possibilities, the real world possibilities of the kind of regulation that might be necessary to deal with the big corporations? Because as you point out, it's not enough just to educate people because notwithstanding the education, there are all these other pressures on us. I mean, you're asking me to predict the winner of the 2020 election. You could use an algorithm (laughs) if you want. (laughs) Because you're not going to make progress when you have a president who's trying to dismantle the EPA and every other progressive or potentially progressive arm of government. So... We are at the point where we're trying to defend regulations that exist. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let me ask a simpler question then, or maybe it's simpler. I mean, do you think that disclosure regulations of the kind that require, you know, chain restaurants to list the number of calories in their dishes and things like that are, I mean, there's some data suggesting that they have some effect at the margin. So I'm not asking you about the data. What I'm asking is whether at an instinctive level you think, yeah, you know, if we do a whole lot more labeling, we'll be much better off. Or if your instinct is no, labeling is not going to be enough to go against the kind of sophisticated marketing. What we need is some actual legal rules that say, you know, certain kinds of food can't be sold to kids or can't be sold in certain packaging or can't be advertised in a certain way, which is what we've done with tobacco. I I guess I think the answer is both. I think that there's a that incremental change is necessary at this point, even if it's just symbolic or representative. And I think food labeling, putting calories on, I mean, there is some data that says that it's useful, but it's certainly not revolutionary. But if you say more information is better, more truth is better, more actual truth is better, and we're starting by saying, you know, a Whopper has a thousand calories or whatever, and you might want to know that, Mm -hmm. that's something. When you get to real transparency, when you can say we're going to have video cameras everywhere that that animals are confined, and we're Mm going to show you on a minute-to-minute basis, you want to know where this burger is from? Mm Here's how you can trace. I mean, that's right. doable. We can trace the history of any any piece of food you like. You can see where it's mm-hmm. from, how it's raised, how it was processed, and so on. That, I think, will help change consciousness. But I think some, some form of recognizing that sugar is the tobacco of the 21st century, mm-hmm. that junk food is, is damaging our health, and that government's job is to protect the public health. And to recognize that, just like government's job is to recognize that vaccines are public health tools. Mm -hmm. If people don't think that, that's really unfortunate, but they're wrong. So now what do you want government to be about? Well, in fact, the case of vaccine, though, at least to my mind, is a pretty clear case where the law ought to dictate. Part of the reason for that is that there's such a big spillover effect on everybody else if I don't vaccinate my kids. So, you know, without talking about the case of the genuine religious objector, you know, the core case of, you know, the person who's just like, well, I just don't want to do that. I think it's probably not healthy. I myself am very comfortable saying the law should mandate that. It's a teeny bit harder to say that in the case of sugar, because although bad eating has spillover effects in the sense that I need more health care and then other people have to help pay for that health care. It doesn't have the same not kind of insignificant. Which is not insignificant, but it doesn't have quite the same immediate spillover effects as non-vaccination it does. Just, I mean, there's no argument. You're eating yourself to death mm-hmm. is not going to kill me, but right. it is going to inconvenience me. And, there, yes. and there's a spectrum here. So yeah. you start with vaccines, you move to tobacco, which mm-hmm. has the secondhand smoke mm-hmm. argument, sure. I suppose. Yeah. And then you say, well... Your ability to drink 10 cans of Coke a day or whatever actually does or may affect my children's health because my children can't think about this stuff in a way a supposedly thoughtful grown-up can. And by keeping the marketing of Coke, for example, unlimited, Mm -hmm. by not joining sides and trying to rein in the rapacious marketing of people who are trying to sell sugar-sweetened beverages to everybody all the time— You're threatening the life of my children, for example. Sure. And I, you know, I, you know, I absolutely right hear the argument. Swing yeah. your arm sure. ends where yeah. your fist beats my face kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's appropriate that you that you mention that adage because that's also where you hit the real objection from libertarians, you know, where they say, well, we have to draw the line somewhere, and that line is at my chin. 
you know, and this is only metaphorically affecting, you know, me or or my kids. And I think you also have to add to that the kind of often class-based reaction that says, look, I have few enough pleasures in my life and you really want to take away from me this the pleasure of of having this Coke. And, you know, then the educated person, quote unquote, says, well, you don't understand. You only like that Coke because the marketing has made your brain like that Coke. And that's about the point where the ordinary person might want to punch you, you know, say, <laughs> but you know, can't. Well, but can't <laughs> because of libertarianism. Right. right. But you, you see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I think I, I do think there is a kind of instinct to say one of the things that's wrong in our society is that educated people think they know what's best for us. And, you know, I'm going to make my own decisions. Well, and don't tell me that I only have these decisions because I'm deluded into it by corporate advertising. Well, even though you, you and I may think, yeah, you are. Yeah, but also if you say, I don't want educated people to make decisions that affect me, you're sort of implying that you want uneducated people yes, to make decisions. Yes, and that is called democracy. That, right, that is called democracy. Uneducated and that's people why, and educated people, but if there are more uneducated people, they make the decision. That's right, and that's the position we're in now. And that's why when you started this conversation, I said you're asking me to predict the winner of the 2020 <laughs> election. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know— our food habits and desires are formed at a really young age. Mm -hmm. If we don't take control over what our children see and eat when it comes to food, what they see and how they're marketed to and what they wind up eating as a result of that, if we don't have some kind of intervention in that arena, we are going to have generation after generation after generation of unhealthy adults because we all know how hard it is to change our, you said it before, we yeah. all want to eat a Whopper now and then. Yeah. We all know how hard it is to change the way the way that we eat. And um, that's because when we were four years old, or now even two years old, we were being bottle-fed Kool-Aid or, or, you know, encouraged to drink Coke or to eat candy or sweeten the breakfast cereal, an obvious one, and so on. I don't think you can make that stuff illegal, certainly not in the current climate. But you can rein it in a little bit, mm -hmm. I think. Let's talk a little bit, if we could, about cooking as a discipline, either a self-discipline or a pleasurable activity or some combination of those things. So you've just reissued the 20th uh, edition, right, of the wonderfully named How to Cook Everything. Mm -hmm. And I presume that your own thinking about what it means to cook has changed from the time that you wrote that book until today. If so, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it hasn't changed. Um, do you think about the purpose of cooking the same way now as you, you did then? I'm so much less obsessive about it and so much more easygoing about it. And, mm -hmm. and um, people still seem to like the food that I'm not even talking about the books. Mm -hmm. The books speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. But when friends come to my house or I cook somewhere else, people still seem to think I know what I'm doing and the food is good. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty good, but it's not sweated over. It's not yeah. obsessed about. And um, I used to do that. And then I realized people love it when you cook for them. They're so happy that, you cook, that you're cooking for them. They're so grateful. Everybody loves to have someone say, I'll cook for you. Yes. So this the bar is not that high. Mm -hmm. You know, you're cooking for somebody, you already have the benefit of the doubt. And the fact is that most of the food out in the world is so bad that when you are cooking for your friends or your family or whatever, you're usually producing stuff that's much, much better than what they're getting for lunch or dinner days that they're 
not being cooked for, not mm-hmm. cooking themselves. So I think I'm more laid back about it. Did, did you originally have some of the the artisans or the artists' love of the undertaking, or was your view always some version of the po- important thing is that you're taking some kind of fresh ingredients that and cooking them? Well, I think at the beginning, I I really like I still really like steep learning curves. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, I knew nothing, mm-hmm. so I could make a boiled lobster or a or some French fries or a white bread of the kind that I wouldn't even consider eating, let alone mm-hmm. making now. Mm-hmm. And be ecstatic yes. at the craft of doing it. Yes. Well, but I kind of know the craft now. I yes. mean, I'm not. And you've also done a lot to teach people some basic techniques. I mean, to me, that was the most transformative aspect of your whole approach. And I, that's had, a, I think, had a huge influence on many other food writers and on many other cookbooks. And uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think you might have been the first person to sort of present it to the reader in that way. You know, learn this suite of techniques, which isn't actually that enormous. It'll take you a long time to get good at them. But if you get competent in these suite of techniques, you can kind of cook. Yeah. I can think of people who did that before Mm -hmm. me, but Mm -hmm. you know, I was the first person to do it after a while of no one having done it. So fair enough. That's that's good enough. It feels that way. (laughs) Um, And I was adamant about doing it that way. And all my books look like that. And, Mm -hmm. and so it's my style and I, yeah, I'm happy about that. Last question, um, and I'm really grateful for your time. When you think about, you know, what an addition of of uh, how to cook everything would look like if you did it again in ten years or mm. even twenty, how do you imagine it evolving in the future? Well, I mean, I if you there have been three editions of how to cook everything: the first yellow one, and then a red one, and then the second paler yellow one, mm-hmm. and a lot of the changes are cosmetic. That is, people wanted photographs from the beginning, so now we have photographs. Mm-hmm. And, and we have more charts and we have more graphics. I mean, it's a more interesting book all around. But the biggest change is that there's less meat and more plants. Mm-hmm. And I think that in 10 years, there'll be less meat still and more plants still. And I think in 20 years, the same. I, I think that... You think the world will follow you? It won't, won't just be your movement there. But you think I there think will be- I'm following. I'm not setting trends. I'm following mm-hmm. trends, or I'm seeing trends. I don't. This is not me. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there's a, there's a give and take, yeah. right? There's a boomerang effect or whatever. But I think I'm representing what's happening. I speak to crowds all the time, and I always ask, "Who here is eating less meat than they were ten years ago?" Mm-hmm. And there's a few cantankerous people who want to prove their independence who don't raise their hands, but everybody raises their hands. Everybody's eating less meat than they were 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, And that's true in every audience I go to. More than 90% of people raise their hands. Um, I I, I don't know, so I'm asking you, because you might, are there bigger picture statistics supporting that? Or is that like people who are buying your books and coming to listen to you? Well, I think there's very much of a speaking to the, preaching to the choir aspect of this for sure. But, you know, the fact that, and and it's a whole separate conversation, but the fact that Burger King is selling a vegan burger, mm-hmm. I think I think speaks to that too. I think people are looking for ways around eating meat. The fact that they are readily changing to a different form of junk food, as in the Impossible Burger, mm-hmm. is maybe a good thing and maybe not. It's very complicated. Well, it might be but, bad for them, but good for the world. Right. So it might satisfy one of our you know, central goals, but not one of the others. Right, but they could be eating falafel and, and 
be good all around in mm -hmm. a way. It's just that no one's out there marketing falafel in that way. Well, there you go. There's your business opportunity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might be working on it, except I'm not. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it was fun. The conversation I had with Mark was really eye-opening, at least for me, in thinking about the changes in how we interact with the whole topic of food. I think we're going to have a lot more opportunity to reflect on that in the days and weeks ahead. I'm certainly looking at what's in my refrigerator very differently than I was before the coronavirus. Not only is there a lot more of it, I had to be really mindful about choosing what was going to go in there. What could be frozen? What could be preserved? What would be good? How I'd get fresh vegetables? And we also have to think much more seriously than usual about the supply chain of how food gets onto our tables. After all, in a world where we're all social distancing, real human beings have to be out there doing their jobs full time and taking on the corona risk just in order to get food continuing to come to us. The centrality and importance of food workers has never been clearer in my lifetime. If you're at home practicing social distancing the way most of us are advised to do, Good luck with it. I hope you're managing. I hope the food on your table is tasty. If you're out there doing your job, trying to enable the rest of us to stay home and stay safe, please accept my thanks and all of our appreciation. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com backslash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.